What's up, everybody? Welcome to a special edition of the Four Cornered Room. I'm your host, Moxie O'Brien, and I am sitting alone in a four-cornered room. There are no candles. Um, I have a lot of difficulty with choosing topics for the show. They always try to focus around uh, a singular issue and hit it from a lot of different places. Like I think that if you listen to the first season of the show, we focused a lot on police and police brutality. Uh, the second season, we talked a lot about labor and the Pinkertons. This season, we've really focused on whiteness, white privilege, white supremacy, uh, white patriarchy, and those kinds of things. And I've hit them mostly from the perspective of a black person, because that's what I know. Uh, but there are underrepresented voices that feel this oppression in the same way that I do. And so to wrap out our season, I thought the right thing to do would be to give space and voice to some of uh, some of the native issues in, in American history. And, of course, there's been a lot of discussion about Canadian residential schools. And much can be said about that. Uh, much will be later, I promise. Uh, but it's it's sort of troubling to me as an American that whenever things happen in other countries, one of our first reactions as Americans is to point fingers and act as if we're not historically culpable for similar, if not identical, crimes. So, uh, because I am an American, I thought that we should talk a bit today about America's history with residential schools. Uh, later on, we're going to have Alex Reed, uh, the Jedi Master, on to talk with us about Canadian residential schools and a lot of other Canadian issues. But up top, I just thought we could talk a bit about what we've done with this issue. So, the purpose of what we call residential schools, which were... Uh, just a bit up top. I'm going to trigger warning this from the beginning because we're talking about uh, historical context and native issues. So you're going to hear what we would consider to be a lot of slurs just by virtue of how people discussed natives in the time. Actually, not even in the time. We still have a Bureau of Indian Affairs right now, to be perfectly honest. So uh, there's a lot of incorrect language around this subject, and I just wanted to warn all of our, all of our uh, friends listening up top that you're going to hear a bit of coarse language throughout the episode, and also some discussions about things like sexual assault, things of that nature. So if you're squeamish with these sorts of things, this is just to let you know up top it's going to be a rough episode. Okay, so... What we would call residential schools were known as Indian boarding schools, and their purpose essentially was the cultural genocide and forced enfranchisement of native tribes through their children. Now, we've touched on this in other episodes of the show, uh, like in the context of Henry Ford's English schools and how white Americans tend to view that the way to success in this country is through assimilation, becoming as white as you possibly can. And this isn't just something you observe here. I mean, the extinction of things like language and culture 
are how you genocide a people. I mean, we can look at what was done to the Kurds. We can look at um, other attempts throughout history. This is how you get rid of a culture. You wipe out as many of them as you can. And then, as I've said, when we talked about Tulsa and other things, you stop talking about it. Uh, and that's why I think it's important to remember America's culpability in this residential school issue because we did the same thing here and we've been a lot quieter about it. Uh, the U.S. has always, in my observation, taken something of a paternalistic approach to the native population in this country. Very much an I know what's best for you um, in uh, assuming that they understand how to administer to the land that was here before they got here, assuming that they understand how to parent. These are, it's a, it, it's, it's a continuous observation that white people will show up to a place that's been operating for, in some cases, thousands of years and decide that everyone has been doing everything wrong up until that point and we're going to fix it for you. Uh, these schools were looked at by the white population and the federal government as a means to civilize native people by making them more Anglo-American. Now, the first attempts by white Americans to establish schools for native children were made by Christian missionaries. Uh, in 1634, uh, Andrew White of the English province of the Society of Jesus in what would now be Southern Maryland, approached native tribes in that area about his desire to build schools. And he said that, that to give you an idea of how white people were approaching the idea of native education, this is what he said to the chief in the area. My mission is to extend civilization and instruction to your ignorant race and show them the way to heaven. So just from the very beginning, it's presented as this... I feel sorry for you because you're doing this not my way. Let me fix it for you. And I feel like a lot of the time white people don't realize that no one asked. And that becomes an issue uh, where you are attempting to export your, uh, I guess, ide not, ideology isn't even the right word necessarily, but the entire construct socially speaking of anglo-american whiteness being exported to all of these places that were perfectly fine the way that they were uh it, the way that um, anglo-american whiteness sort of spreads like a virus i think is is what i'm alluding to uh so from 1776 to 1891 the federal government was actually giving money to churches to build schools for native re-education. So I didn't look up when separation of church and state was codified or anything like that, but that's almost, a, no, it's over 100 years, actually. It's like 125, where the federal government was literally subsidizing education by giving, I think the, the budget was something like $10,000 a year to the Catholic Church and Protestant churches for the re-education of native children. Uh, and between 1778 and 1871, the government also signed 389 treaties with native tribes, and most of them contained provisions that the government would provide education in exchange for land. This is whenever reservations were being set up all over the country, and they were essentially herding people into uh, 
government-provided property, but while they were taking the land that these people belonged on and putting them on these government-supplied tracts, they were making them sign treaties that essentially said, you get this land, but we own your kids until they're 16 years old. Um, for example, the Fort Laramie Treaty of 1868, which established the Great Sioux Reservation, made express the government's intent that all natives residing on the reservation would surrender any children aged 6 to 16 to attend boarding schools. In 1870, President Ulysses Grant initiated a campaign to eliminate the use of native languages. In 1871, the United States government prohibited, for, prohibited further treaties with native tribes and passed the Appropriations Act of Indian Education, which required the establishment of day schools on reservations. So before you had these boarding schools that they sent people to away from the reservation, uh, missionaries and people who were receiving funding from the federal government were building schools on reservation land. So the government would give tribes this allotment of property and then take a portion of it to build a school that they would require you to send your children to. And the main purpose of this school was the quote-unquote civilization of your children, which meant your kids were taught not to speak the language, not to dress like you, not to practice any of your traditions. And uh, a report to Congress in 1873 stated that teaching English in day schools was ineffective because children still spoke their native languages at home. Uh, this is how the boarding school movement was born. To back up just a little bit, uh, all of this was overseen by something called the Bureau of Indian Affairs. Uh, its predecessor was the Committee on Indian Affairs, which was actually like the oldest federal organization in the history of the country. It was established in 1775 by Ben Franklin. Um, weird bit about him, I didn't realize this, he apparently had kind of a progressive for his time period view on natives in that he observed that they didn't have cops or government in the way that Americans did and thought that that made more sense. So that, that uh, you hear a lot of mixed reviews on Ben Franklin, but apparently for the 1700s, he was pretty woke about natives for whatever the fuck that's worth. Uh, so the Bureau of Indian Affairs was established in 1824 and it's actually still in operation today. It was established by John C. Calhoun, uh, who was the Secretary of War, and it was originally named the Indian Office. Actually, it was named the Indian Office until 1947. Uh, from 1824 to 1977, six of the Bureau of Indian Affairs commissioners have been of native descent. So it's been run by white people for the majority of the time that it's been a thing. And we're actually going to talk about how up until I think it was the 1960s, natives weren't even allowed to work there, which is going to explain a lot of the problems that we're going to get into. Uh, so the BIA... Uh, leaned heavily into progressive era tendencies toward assimilationism. Uh, the progressive era is recognized as the period from 1896 to 1916, and it was marked by middle-class white social activism. 
Progressive reformists, as they were called, were predominantly white women and Christian ministers and uh, are often associated with first wave feminism and women's suffrage. Uh, these women often characterize themselves as municipal housekeepers, uh, there to clean up government and social corruption. This period is noteworthy for the establishment of things like the FDA and antitrust laws, but it's also recognized as the nadir of American race relations. Uh, one of the social corruptions addressed by progressive reformists was the idea of racial integration. As an example, Woodrow Wilson was a progressive reformist, and you've heard at length on this show about what an awful person Woodrow Wilson was. <clears throat> Um, many progressives were moralistic in their support of things like prohibition, and as we've discussed, first wave feminism was tied pretty closely with the Klan. So, uh, a lot of the people who were pushing for this boarding school agenda were, historically speaking, some of the most racist people in the history of the country. And that always works out well. Uh, progressive reformists typically portrayed natives as a vanishing race and uh, as such ushered in the era of wild western entertainment in a backwards attempt to preserve a quote-unquote vanishing culture. Uh, these early wild west shows were more like minstrel performances by the sounds of things where uh, they would hire actual natives to portray stereotypical caricatures of themselves for white audiences. Uh, while uh, negatively portraying natives as a means of preserving a vanishing culture, the U.S. government was also acquiring more native land and displacing them onto reservations. So they were front-facing, saying, we need to preserve this culture, where are all the natives going? And at the same time, wiping them out and putting them on reservations behind closed doors. Actually, I don't even know how behind closed doors it was. Like, it's very difficult when you discuss old American history because we live in such a time of neoliberalism and the quote-unquote quiet part loud and dog whistling that you forget that everyone used to just be really upfront about how much white people hated everyone else. Like, some of the speeches that I read doing research for this show, even I'm shocked. Like, wow, you could just say... I'm up here running for office on a ticket of white supremacy and fuck everyone who has a problem with that. We should kill them. That used to just be like an appropriate political stance. I mean, I guess it's not an inappropriate political sense now, but that's neither here nor there. Uh, the progressive movement and the federal government uh, found the perfect man for the job of assimilating native children in Richard Henry Pratt. Uh, Pratt had fought in the Red River War, which was a U.S. military campaign launched in 1874 to displace the Comanche, Kiowa, Southern Cheyenne, and Arapaho tribes from the Southern Plains and forcibly relocate them to reservations. The Red River War actually marked the end of free-roaming native populations on the Southern Great Plains region. Uh, Pratt himself was a militant assimilationist who was quoted in explaining his mission statement as follows. A great general has said that the only good Indian is a dead Indian, and that high sanction of his destruction has been an enormous factor in promoting Indian massacres. In a sense, I agree with the sentiment, but only in this, that all the Indian there is in the race should be dead. Kill the Indian in him to save the man. And 
kill the Indian, save the man sort of became the de facto slogan for American residential schools. Uh, And to this end, the Carlisle Indian Industrial School was established in 1879 in Carlisle, Pennsylvania. This was the first American residential school that we had. was right here in Pennsylvania. Uh, The first students for the school were selected by BIA Commissioner Ezra Haight because their respective tribes had refused to cede more territory to the U.S. government, and it was less than three years removed from the Lakota victory at Little Bighorn. So the first kids enrolled in the first American residential school were quite literally and openly admitted to having been kidnapped as revenge for the death of General Custer. Uh, The first enrollment of students was 147 children aged 6 to 25, uh, whom Pratt himself described as hostages for the good behavior of the people. Parents were asked to voluntarily sign over rights for their children, but upon refusal, food rations, clothing, medicine, or annuities were, uh, were refused. Uh, In 1895, actually 19 Hopi men were sent to Alcatraz for refusing to send their children to boarding schools. Uh, As was his objective, Pratt militaristically forced uh, Americanization on the students. Uh, The boys' hair was cut, which if you know anything about uh, Native culture, long hair is sort of a sign of uh, adulthood and manhood for, for Native boys, so forcing them to cut their hair in European styles was shameful for a lot of these boys. Uh, They were forced to change the way they dressed. They weren't allowed to uh, listen to or sing native songs or dances. All of those were forbidden. It was the systematic wiping out of a culture done by a guy who had done a version of this in the army. Uh, there's, There's no other way to look at this. Uh, The students were reassigned Christian names that were chosen from a list on a wall or assigned by a teacher if the children refused to choose a name for themselves. Uh, As I've said, native language was forbidden to the extent that no two children from the same tribe were permitted to live in the same dorm room. And being caught breaking this rule could result in punishments ranging from having one's mouth washed out with lye soap to forced labor, to solitary confinement, and uh, beatings. Because the purpose of the school was the eradication of Native culture, uh, particular attention was paid to female students. In addition to rampant reports of sexual abuse, female students received more stringent discipline as they were viewed as the homemakers in Anglo-American culture, and therefore they were able to further the assimilation process of their partners, as well as raise their children without Native culture. Uh, Many Native tribes did not subscribe to Anglo-American gender roles or patriarchy, and these girls came from tribes where women were warriors, statespersons, religious leaders, shaman, and chiefs. And they had to be taught the subservience and chattel caste of Anglo-American women. So there was a literal... This is difficult to discuss, but there's a literal discussion of, of rape being used to break the women like horses. Um, it's... it's, it's um, this stuff is not easy for me to talk about, I guess, is is uh what i'm trying to say it's uh, 
it's hard to read about things from a historical context and not look at them. Like I know we're taught in this country to not look at the pages in history books like they're things happening to real people in real time, but uh, I don't have that defense mechanism, so a lot of this stuff was very, very difficult for me to read. Um, forced interracial marriage was also an unwritten policy. It, it, it had actually long been a means of eliminating native culture and heritage by encouraging interracial pairings for native men. I actually thought that was interesting as a black person because uh, anti-miscegenation and the idea of uh, interracial relationships being forbidden was a thing for black people until the 1960s. But conversely, they were encouraging native integration as a means of getting rid of their population by breeding them out for all intents and purposes. And that wasn't even the only way they did that. Like, there's a, a fairly extensive history of the federal government identifying tribes that weren't going to, for lack of a better word, play ball in giving up their land and just legislating them to no longer be recognized as tribes. Just, oh, your status as native is gone now. And, of course, we talked about that a bit with the uh, the one-drop rule and how a lot of people's ethnic status was changed overnight arbitrarily at the whim of a racist from being whatever you had been to you are now black or you are now this or you are now that. So it's, it's, it's difficult as a person who identifies strongly with my ethnicity to recognize the social construction of everything is just a means by which to corral and herd people. Um, so children were taught European farming methods, uh, which was also a way of inducing child labor to run farms, which sold livestock, fruits, and vegetables to offset costs, as well as feed the students for whom malnutrition was rampant. Um, as I said, their music and culture was also prohibited, and so was communication with their parents. When school was out of session, Pratt actually placed students with white families in the areas that they couldn't go home. Uh, the forced removal and lack of communication with parents was justified by American paternalism, what we talked about a little bit at the top of the show. Uh, one of the BIA's field agents, John S. Ward, said the following... The parents of these Indian children are ignorant and know nothing of the value of education. Parental authority is hardly known or exercised among the Indians in this agency. The Compulsory Indian Education Act was signed in 1887, and in 1891, the federal government legalized the denial of Native parental rights, uh, compelling parents to permit the removal of their children. This practice remained law until it was rolled back by the Indian Child Welfare Act in 1976. So we were denying the parental rights of Native people in this country as a means of kidnapping and re-educating their children until 1976. There are people listening to this show who remember 1976, for the record. Uh, after the General Allotment Act of 1887, nearly 50 million acres of land was stolen from natives and all reservation schools, like I talked about earlier, they had built schools, uh, the day schools on the reservations. 
Uh, and in some cases, cases, natives were permitted to do their own child rearing and education in these day schools. Uh, well, in 1887, all of those schools were either taken over by Anglo-Americans or burned down. Um, this program worked for all intents and purposes. I put work in big scare quotes. Uh, as graduating students often found themselves shunned by their tribes or completely unfamiliar with their languages and cultures whenever they returned home after graduating. And in many cases, they did not stay with families or on reservations after graduating, uh, which is, to be perfectly frank, exactly what the American government wanted in the first place. Uh, after Carlisle was deemed a success, by 1902, the Bureau of Indian Affairs authorized 25 federally funded off-reservation schools in 15 states and territories with over 6,000 enrolled students. Federal law required Native children to be educated according to Anglo-American standards, and church attendance and baptism were often required. Now, Pratt, for his part, would eventually go on to criticize and denounce the BIA and the reservation system as hindrances to the civilization and assimilation of Native people. Uh, essentially, that giving them their own shit would make it too hard for them to be white people, so we weren't going all in enough. I may or may not have mentioned that this dude was a bit militaristic. Uh, but as a result of his criticism of the BIA and the reservation system, he was forced into retirement in 1903. Uh, the Carlisle School itself would close in 1918, with an estimated 10,000 Native children having attended there. Uh, it was closed after investigations into abuse by the administration. A major problem for many boarding schools was Native children's susceptibility to white men's diseases, such as tuberculosis. More than 180 students are buried in the Carlisle Indian School Cemetery. Uh, tuberculosis, the measles, and trachoma were common due to unsanitary conditions and the fact that no antibiotics or vaccines existed, and due to overcrowding, disease spread quickly. Many of the native deaths during the influenza pandemic of 1918 and 1919, which hit the native population particularly hard, took place in boarding schools. The 1928 Miriam report noted that infectious disease was often widespread at the schools due to malnutrition, overcrowding, poor sanitary conditions, and students being weakened by overwork. We mentioned that the kids were often put into farm work as a form of discipline and also so that they could sell the crops to pay for all the equipment at the schools. Almost sounds like a grift. Um... That same report noted that death rates for Native students were 6.5 times higher than for other ethnic groups. Uh, as a for example, the Phoenix Indian School said that in December of 1899, measles broke out at the school, reaching ec epidemic proportions by January. In its wake, 325 cases of measles, 60 cases of pneumonia, and 9 deaths were recorded in 10 days. While no real formal investigation has gotten underway, it's estimated that 40,000 children died in boarding schools in the United States, primarily due to disease and insufficient medical care. 
Despite high mortality rates, the boarding schools were seen as a light alternative to the massacre and genocide of past efforts. By 1925, an estimated 80,000 students were enrolled in boarding schools, and by 1926, nearly 83% of school-age Native children were attending boarding schools in 29 states. The Indian Reorganization Act was passed in 1934 and permitted Natives to work for the BIA for the first time. So from when it was established in 1824 to 1934, 110 years of organization, Natives were not permitted to work there, which is staggering to me. Um... And then, as we mentioned a little bit earlier, the passage of the Indian Child Welfare Act resulted in the closing of many boarding schools in the 1980s and 90s. Uh, As of 2007, there were an estimated 9,500 children enrolled in the remaining 14 boarding schools operating in the U.S., and as of last year, the Bureau of Indian Education operates 160 schools in total. Students that are currently attending these schools report not knowing the history of the schools that they're attending, which I find interesting. Uh, the The U.S. has not begun inquiries the way that Canada has, but Deb Holland has announced plans for an investigation as Secretary of the Interior. Thus far, 222 sets of remains have been found at one location, the Chemawa Indian School. Uh, Chemawa is actually still an operational boarding school, although it raised the gravestones in the school cemetery in 1960. And all of the death records that we do have were only ever reported from four of the 360 boarding schools in operation in the U.S. Uh, This is a fucking travesty of our history, uh, which we're only now beginning to confront. Uh, I have a quote here from Crazy Horse that seemed relevant that I'm going to read now. Uh, We do not interfere with you, and again, you say, why do you not become civilized? We do not want your civilization. We would live as our fathers did and their fathers before them. Uh, response to, I guess, is a bit of a positive, if, if there can be one. Uh, response to boarding school assimilation really galvanized what's known as the Pan-Indian movement and permitted a lot of young natives of many tribes to organize together because they put them all in the same place and wouldn't let them be near members of their same tribes. So they were able to get together with people from lots of different native cultures and tribes and form groups. You actually see a lot of the early examples of native rights activists came from and graduated from these schools and had a stark reaction to the attempted forced Americanization that they were uh, that they were subjected to. So... In, in a way, white people attempting to stamp out Native culture reinforced the desire in a lot of people to connect with Native culture. And it also uh, led to a lot of the water rights activism, land rights activism, food sovereignty activism, and things of that nature that we're seeing today. And to that end, before we have Alex on, I wanted to talk a bit about uh, and read, actually, the Land Back Manifesto. So, 
the Landback Manifesto was drafted in 2020 by the NDN Collective in response to protests at Mount Rushmore. Uh, the current Landback campaign was actually launched on Indigenous Peoples Day in 2020. Uh, the idea itself isn't new. It's actually been around for a very long time, but it was reintroduced contemporarily in 2018 by Arnell Tailfeathers of the Blood Tribe. And it calls for the transfer of deeds, respecting and reorganizing indigenous rights, preserving languages and traditions, and ensuring food sovereignty, housing, and clean air and water. Uh, the Mount Rushmore protests occurred in July of last year when activists from the NDN Collective assembled on a highway leading to the Mount Rushmore National Memorial, where Donald Trump was scheduled to give a campaign speech. Uh, Mount Rushmore is known to the Sioux as the Six Grandfathers, and it's part of a long unceded Black Hills land claim. I also think it's noteworthy that uh, the dude who carved Mount Rushmore was a Klansman, uh, Gutzen Borglum, and he also carved the Stone Mountain Memorial. So there's a lot of history there with that with that monument in particular. I, I don't know. Some of you may have been there. Uh, there's also been a picture circulating for a while of the Mount Rushmore monument where you can see the four ugly faces and then this beautiful black mountain face. It, the, 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 the monument really ruins the Black Hills there is, is what I'm getting at. So I've... I've often wondered why we don't just blow that up, but the reality is it's not our land and we should let the people who own the fucking land do what they want to do with it, and I think that's sort of what Landback is about. So what I wanted to do today is pull up the Landback Manifesto and go over it with you. Uh, for those of you who haven't read it, we will also have a link to the document in today's episode description. So Landback is the reclamation of everything stolen from the original peoples. Land, language, ceremony, medicine, and kinship. It is a relationship with Mother Earth that is symbiotic and just, where we have reclaimed stewardship. It is bringing our people with us as we move towards liberation and embodied sovereignty through an organizing, political, and narrative framework. It is a long legacy of warriors and leaders who sacrificed freedom and life. It is a catalyst for current generation organizers and centers the voices of those who represent our future. It is recognizing that our struggle is interconnected with the struggles of all oppressed peoples. It is a future where black reparations and indigenous land back coexist, where BIPOC, collective liberation, is at the core. It is acknowledging that only when Mother Earth is well can we, her children, be well. It is our belonging to the land because we are the land. Now, Landback has 13 organizing principles that we're going to go over next. Number one, don't burn bridges. Even when there is conflict between groups or organizers, remember that we are fighting for all of our peoples and we will continue to be in community even after this battle. Number two, don't defend our ways. Number three, organize to win. Number four, move from abundance. We come from a space of scarcity. We must work from a place of abundance. Number five, we bring our people with us. Number six, deep relationships by attraction, not promotion. Number seven, divest, invest. Number eight, we value our warriors. Number nine, room for grace. Be able to be human. Number 10, 
we cannot let our oppressors in humanity take away from ours. Number 11. Strategy includes guidance. Number 12. Realness. Sometimes the truth hurts. Number 13. Unapologetic, but keep it classy. <laughs> I like that. Uh, about Land Back. Land Back is a movement that has existed for generations with a long legacy of organizing and sacrificing to get indigenous lands back into indigenous hands. Currently, there are land back battles being fought all across Turtle Island to the north and the south. As NDN Collective, we are stepping into this legacy with the launch of the Land Back Campaign as a mechanism to connect, coordinate, resource, and amplify this movement and the communities that are fighting for land back. The closure of Mount Rushmore, return of that land and all public lands in the Black Hills, South Dakota, is our cornerstone battle from which we will build out this campaign. Not only does Mount Rushmore sit at the heart of the sacred Black Hills, but it is an international symbol of white supremacy and colonization. To truly dismantle white supremacy and systems of oppression, we have to go back to the roots, which for us is putting indigenous lands back in indigenous hands. In addition, Land Back is more than just a campaign. It is a meta-narrative that allows us to deepen our relationships across the field of organizing movements, working towards true collective liberation. It allows us to envision a world where Black, Indigenous, and POC liberation coexists. It is our political, organizing, and narrative framework from which we do the work. There are four Land Back campaign demands. Number one, dismantle white supremacy structures that forcefully remove us from our lands and continue to keep our peoples in oppression. And uh, there's an A here, the Bureau of Land Management and National Park Service. Number two, defund white supremacy and the mechanisms and systems that enforce it and disconnect us from stewardship of the land. Uh, the A here is police, military industrial complex, border patrol, and ICE. Number three, Return all public lands back into indigenous hands. And number four, consent, moving us out of an era of consultation and into a new era of policy around free and prior informed consent. And that is the land back document, just sort of explaining that this wasn't yours to take in the first place. And if you want to move forward ethically, that's part of what we need to do. A, a revolutionary mindset really needs to come from a place of this land did not belong to the people who've been running it for most of the time that they've been here. And moving forward, the people whose land it was should decide what gets done with it. Uh, you don't have to like what they choose to do with it. That's their prerogative. It's their fucking land. All right, everybody, we've got Alex Reed, a, uh, an activist from Canada, coming on the show to do an interview with me here. Uh, Alex has been a strong and principled voice on a lot of subjects that I've followed for a few years now, and I'm very excited to have him on here to uh, educate me and the audience on some subjects. So uh, with that, we're going to throw it over to Alex. How are you today, Alex? Pretty damn good, buddy. Right on, right on. Uh, I guess we'll just fucking get into it. I I um, did that thing that I do on the show often when I'm doing my own research, where I looked at the list of things you wanted to talk about, and I got it in my head, because I'm an asshole, that I could just in like 25 minutes read about the Indian Act and understand it. 
And that's not oh, true. Man. That's not true at all. <laughs> no, there's quite a bit to it. It's been a very, very, very long and successful, absolutely devastating measure to Indigenous people for almost 160 years. Takes a little bit of time to cover. Yeah, I... <laughs> I, I looked at the uh, I opened the Wikipedia page because they tell the truth about everything for starters and saw that it went back to 1867 and just nah, fuck there's there's no way. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah, buddy. Yeah, it's it's a uh, it goes back quite a ways. But having said that, I, I, I know there's uh, several things you wanted to cover with me today, and I want to give you as much time to do that as possible. So let's just get right into it, shall we? Well, where would you like to start? Um, I think I'd like to start reading that, uh, the one, one piece I did. Um, and then after that, we can just like tailor into the related things that can like lay the groundwork and then I can finish off with some jokes and some lighter stuff. Perfect. Sounds good. So you have oh, an, right. you, uh, you wrote an article for, was this, uh, for a publication? Uh, no, this was just, um, one of the uh, Communist Party of Canada members asked me to speak at a anti-racist event, an anti-imperialist event. Okay. And I was like, yeah, man, sure. That sounds all right. He's like, oh, dude, that's perfect. We had a hell of a time trying to find a native speaker. I was like, well, fuck, you got one. <laughs> Don't worry, <laughs> man. I think I saw the video of at least part of that. I think there was a video circulating of you speaking at that event. Yeah. I. Uh, oh, man. I, I got to say. I did terribly. I felt I did awful, man. Like I've never <laughs> spoke in front of people before. I and think, like I think everyone thinks that they do worse than than they actually do with those things. You know what I mean? Like I spend yeah. a lot of time thinking that I suck at what I do. I think it's just a byproduct of being a perfectionist about stuff. Well, yeah, and just like that tendency of like artists just to like be their own worst critic and just yes. like Yeah, I feel you, man. Um, but yeah, it was funny because like, I, like I watched Michael Parenti speeches the day before and I was like, man, I want to like channel that energy. I want to go so hard. I want people to feel and remember this. Mm -hmm. And then the day of, I thought there was going to be like a hundred people. There was like maybe 40 people. And then a whole bunch of them were like less than 10 feet away from me. So I was like, man, Ooh. I can't like stand and shout passionately at people sitting almost at arm's length from me. <laughs> <You're gonna be> <laughs> like... <laughs> the parenti might actually make the crowd uncomfortable in that environment. Yeah, it would have been too gnarly. <clears throat> but uh, yeah, yeah, I pulled it out. So i ready whenever. Okay, well, here we go. <clears throat> so... For this speech, I was only given 10 minutes to speak on residential schools, but I branched out a little bit, so it ended up being 12 minutes. But they were really happy with what I did, so I added the stuff that I wasn't able to fit in the original 10-minute slot I was assigned, and I'll start with that. Okay. And it is, just as a content warning, it has every different type of violence it has just everything bad that you can imagine. So it's a really, 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 blanket, really heavy bit. Here. Blanket trigger warning. Yeah. So, okay. To be gentle to the audience, I didn't mention the worst stories, 
and I did not mention the sexual violence that was used in residential schools. Over 5,000 perpetrators of the violence in the residential schools have been identified, yet not a single one of them has gone to jail. Not even the nun who is using the electric chair on students. Sexual violence is a tactic of war and psychological devastation. It was used in these fascist institutions as it is used in Chile today by the police. These types of problems, they're not in the past. To put it in perspective, when I was drinking with some friends the week before I did this um, speaking, we talked to a random native guy, just some random native dude on a bench. He was playing guitar with his friend in Vancouver. We talked to him and I gave him 20 bucks to play some songs for us. He played a few songs and I hung back to chat. He quickly told me that he was taken by the foster care system when he was two and that he started getting molested by that family, I have in quotes, when he was two. This completely random native person and his friend as we walked by Gatorade and Smokes was one of the victims of the settler state's violence. His friend gave me a Budweiser for chatting with him. It is also important to know that residential schools were used to crush the egalitarian development of indigenous societies. The girls in these schools were too resilient, but the boys did not have the same resilience. They were more vulnerable. The preachers and teachers that I have again in quotes, taught the boys misogyny and they laid the foundation for sexism, the gender inequality, misogyny, and the colonial patriarchal devastation and that horrible framework that really slashed and burned the equitable and matriarchal balances that previously maintained harmony among indigenous people across this continent. The, the Ministry of Children and Family Development, which is known as MCFD, provides more than triple the, triple the funding to foster parents than to birth parents. This is a state-sanctioned pipeline of separating families. When 52% of the kids taken are Indigenous, we can see that MCFD is the latest tactic in Canada's deliberate and long-term strategy of separating, separating families and just upholding violence to Indigenous people. This has been a 300-year tradition of just, just a 300 year tradition of separating indigenous families, specifically to prevent indigenous independence, to disrupt community and to crush the indigenous strength that was there. So that is the little extra part that was a little bit dark. And now for the bit on residential schools and then the stuff related to that. Okay. So this is the start of the actual part now. It says, I've been asked by a good friend to speak about residential schools today. This has been a really heavy few months for indigenous people. My grandfather and much of my family went to residential school. Residential school is full-time until grade three and it was half work and half school. These schools were required to be in, uh, self independent or reliant so they had farms they had a whole bunch of stuff that they were doing to try uh not use so much public funds or whatever 
Um, the majority of my grandpa's friends committed suicide within two years of graduation. My grandpa hated washing carrots because throughout the winters, your hands would freeze. My grandpa was hungry for 10 years straight. Um, one of the wardens on the farm beat students every day with a flashlight. My uncle's friend's friend was a chronic bedwetter and he was whipped and beaten every time he went to bed. And they locked the bathrooms after midnight so kids can't use the toilets. Um, my grandpa's good friend uh, built a raft and with two friends, they raided the staff room for food. They took off on these two raft on the raft with his friends and they were discovered a few days later. This friend and the other two that had fled with them were whipped in front of the entire school. And that friend of his committed suicide right after graduation. The federal government has confirmed that 6,000 plus students have died in the schools. As of 2021, 3,200 of their identities have been confirmed. Today, there are estimates that as many as 30,000 of the 150,000 students attending did not make it home. Now in comment sections everywhere, there are a lot of heinously violent people saying, well, lots of these children died from tuberculosis. Now this reveals their ignorance and it is nothing more than a racist excuse. It wasn't a bullet that killed Anne Frank. It wasn't a gas chamber either. It was typhus. It is characteristic tactic of fascism to subject victims to conditions that are antithetical to life. This, task, this tactic of systemically placing people in conditions where disease flourishes is used today too by the United States. The ICE facilities are using this tactic as we speak. Based on the recommendations of the Davin Report, that British devil, John A. MacDonald, authorized the creation of residential school in 1880, designed isolate Indigenous children from their families and cut all ties to their culture. It was the express intention of residential schools to kill the Indian and the child. After visiting 35 residential schools, Dr. Peter Henderson Bryce, Chief Medical Officer for Canada's Department of the Interior and Indian Affairs from 1904 to 1921, revealed that Indigenous children were dying at alarming rates, with the mortality rate of enrolled students as high as 25%. This number climbed to 69% after students left school. Now it's important to note that while residential schools were officially created in 1880, the concept has been here much longer. For more than 200 years, from the early 1600s to the 1800s, religious orders ran mission schools for indigenous children. The precursors to government of Canada's residential school system. This is important to know because we can see that institutionalized violence toward Indigenous children is older than this country as it exists today. It is important to know because it helps us understand the conditions today and the continuity of the residential school system with the so-called child and family services. That's uh, MCFD, those pricks who I mentioned before. This colonial violence has continued uninterrupted. Indigenous kids are 7.7 .7 of the population, yet they comprise 52% of the kids in foster care. 
MCFD has taken more kids than residential schools did. Colonialism has never ended here, and Canada upholds it very tenaciously everywhere else. Canada has inflicted colonial violence, resource robbery, and regime change against Bolivia, Haiti, the Congo, the Dominican Republic, Greece, huge chunks of southern Macedonia, Venezuela, Papua New Guinea, Guatemala, Burkina Faso, Senegal, Ecuador, Chile, and so forth. For Indigenous people, fascism has been here a long time. Most Canadian people have been able to avoid it, but that is becoming less and less the case as things continue to get worse. Che Guevara said that it isn't my fault that reality is Marxist. This means that the, con this means that the material conditions matter. Corporations can spend billions of dollars to drown the population in lies. But there comes a time when material conditions contradict the propaganda too hard for people to keep believing in it. In 2021, they can no longer beat us over the head with the idea of the American dream. Right now, the empire of white supremacy is a sinking luxury cruise ship. Hundreds of millions of people are stuck punching the clock and trying to keep above water while the capitalist class sits on the top deck in the sun, drinking champagne and smoking cigars in stolen opulence. Another thing to think about is language. In my language, there is a term for someone who speaks so much that it is offensive. Even if, what they're, even if they aren't saying anything wrong, it is wrong to be a windbag. This concept is sorely needed in English. In anthropology, there is a huge debate on whether culture or the language used to articulate that culture came first. <clears throat> in North America, there is a huge amount of terms to hate on people on welfare and poor people. I'm sure most people listening can think of many of them. But there isn't an equal or greater number of terms to hate the rich and hate the exploiters of our labor, our bodies, and our minds. This is a glaring reflection of the way that we have been taught to think. The holes in this patchwork language are lapses in our perception. The ruling class has given us a lot of poisonous words and ideas to perpetuate, and they have not given us the words to heal, to foster solidarity, and to build. We need to take a good hard look at where these colonial tongues are spoken. How far do we see English, French, and Spanish spoken across the world as a testament to fascism? Today, there are 29 countries in Africa that speak French, and 15 of the country's economies are controlled by France. Virtually all of Latin America and South America speak Spanish and has had their governments overthrown by US imperialism something that we benefit from in the imperial core because we get cheaper products. Fascism is here for indigenous people and it has been exported across the continent, across continents for decades. People praise Scandinavian countries for their policies, but they're actually neoliberal hellholes who only sound good because they receive blood money from the exploitive relationship of the so-called third world. Without that exploitation, each of these nations would crumble like a house of cards in a hurricane. As of 2019, there are 197 Canadian mining corporations plundering Latin and South America, 
and one and 94 Canadian mining corporations plundering Africa. This country is an imperialist nation. Fascism is here and it has landed on this continent in 1492. Since then they have enslaved, extorted, and committed genocide against indigenous peoples and inflicted all types of violence to pursue power and profits at our direct expense. Natives like to joke that Canada is three corporations in a trench coat, and I wish it was that simple, but it isn't. Since Hudson's Bay Company, their mercenaries, the Anglos, and the Francos declared this country in 1867, they have pillaged left and right. They have stolen the furs, the oil, the copper, the diamonds, the grain, the wheat, the salmon, the bison, the water, the timber, the land beneath our feet, and the very ecosphere that we use to breathe. A few weeks ago, we saw Lytton burn to the ground. A few years ago, we watched Fort McMurray burn to the ground. Three summers ago, we watched the sky turn yellow with smoke. There are, actually, there are actual companies selling Canadian air. We must put a stop to the commodification of our resources. We must put a stop to the commodification of these pieces of our lives. We must put a stop to the commodification of our safety, our time, our health, our environment, our education, and the bonds that we have as humans. We must understand that settler colonialism, fascism, capitalism, patriarchy, and white supremacy are part of one beast. We must drive a stake through the heart of this beast of relentless and genocidal capitalist expansionism. Without a, without a reorientation of our society towards indigenous-led socialism, we will watch in terror as more and more the working class suffocates. Day in and day out, we will watch people driven to the edge of desperation. But I wanna end this on a happy note. The ruling class has billions in infrastructure. It has the solidarity of other ruling classes internationally. It has the police, it has the militaries, it has the training, and has all the funding it could ever need. But what do we have that it doesn't have? We the people have love. We have solidarity. We are the ones that have understanding of each other's struggles. Those lab coat eggheads in ivory towers for decades thought that it was opposable thumbs that put humanity at the top of the food chain, but they were wrong. It is our empathy. It is theory of mind. Those are the things that has made humanity so powerful. When asked what constituted the beginnings of civilization, the anthropologist Margaret Mead said, a healed femur. The time and effort required to heal each other, she said, demonstrated the first sign of civilization, of compassion. It is our ability to read how another is doing through nothing more than a look, a pained sigh, a glance, a shift in tone of voice. These are incredibly small things, but they let us read each other as clear as day, and they allow us to care for each other. This is where the working class differs from the ruling class. The ruling class, the paper signing murderers are motivated by numbers and concepts, but we are motivated by love and by our humanity. In Lakota, their term for I love you translates to I would suffer for you. 
it is a term that cannot be thrown around that cannot be thrown around the way I love you is thrown around in this colonial tongue. As long as we remember that all we have is each other and stand shoulder to shoulder, we will be victorious. All my relations. And that's the end of that bit. You were worried that that didn't sound good? Uh, <laughs> powerful <laughs> shit, man. Jesus Christ. Listen, I uh, so there. You, uh, there's not a word for it, but I remember back when I used to do stand-up that every once in a while, if you were headlining, you'd get like the middle card guy who would just destroy and leave, and then you'd have to figure out how to follow that. And I, I very much have those vibes right now. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, thank you. <laughs> I, I I definitely learned a lot there, though. There's there's a lot. I mean, I don't. As an American, I'm not terribly familiar with Canadian history or Canadian politics, so there's definitely aspects of what you're dealing with in Canada that are f completely alien to me. Um, there is some overlap. Like, I talked a bit earlier about American residential schools on the first half of the show, and there's definitely some overlap there, but uh, some of that was very, very new information and very difficult to hear, but also... Uh, necessary, and I think that um, particularly in the States, we so whitewash our education that we never hear any of this shit. I mean, in, in terms of education about Native history, I don't think I learned anything of value in school. Um, <laughs> yeah. uh, really, well, I mean, we're talking about textbooks that say like slaves came over because they were happy to help in the field. So these are oh not accurate depictions of historical events whatsoever. And I think all I really learned about native history was like <coughs> Squanto taught white people how to grow plants by putting fish in the ground. And that was about the long <laughs> and the short of it. <laughs> yeah, man. So much of like the history that we're taught is basically like white supremacist fanfic of and history. Propaganda. Yeah. Oh, and, yeah. And not good propaganda either. I mean, it's the fan fiction thing is very, very accurate because I feel like a lot of our folk heroes get depicted like comic book characters. Um, oh, yeah, for sure. And it's like, it's like, it's like so bizarre for people to learn that that's completely terrible and that those heroes are actually like murderers and rapists right, and like people who own slaves, people who raped indigenous people like i didn't know buffalo bill was a real person until i was in my mid-20s and then i wished that i thought he was just the guy who wore a suit made out of people from silence of the lambs and not who he actually was <laughs> <laughs> oh man yeah I, I feel you well i i appreciate you reading that article uh because like i said it was very educational there's there's a lot to unpack there so i guess we should un pack it then um you mentioned there were organizations in canada selling air oh yeah dude I, like this like when i first heard about it i laughed my ass off now i'm not laughing as much this was about five years ago and it was selling uh at the time it was exporting a whole bunch of air in cans and selling it to China because China was having really, really big industrial coal production. Okay, this I'm familiar with. Yeah. So, like, at the time I was laughing, but now it's, like, kind of sad because 
things have just gotten worse and worse with like smoke and forest fires and oil corporations controlling everything. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> I, I feel like there was cynical people like myself 25 years ago were joking about error in a can being a thing in late stage capitalism. And that's just one of the many hellscape predictions that people had that ended up coming <laughs> <Yeah>. true. <laughs> oh yeah, man. That's, that's the terrible thing about like joking is that there's a little kernel of truth in there. Well, I think and it has, died. And, and it like, it makes it like, there has to be a little kernel of truth and it has to make sense. Right. And generally it's like making like some wild comparison that wouldn't be like rational. But the way capitalism has gone, it hasn't been rational. You can't, so all these... you, can't be, you can't be ironic anymore. <laughs> yeah. No one, ever people have been saying you can't tell if something is the onion or not for the past six years. <laughs> oh, yeah, man, exactly. It's like things have just gotten worse and worse and worse. And it's like it's hard to make some kind of joke that is out of this world and that it is like this ridiculous thing because we're at this point in history where things like people always mention the twilight zone or whatever it's happening and that's, and that's a little bit before my time but it's like yeah man we've reached this stage where the entire like infrastructure is the way things have gone so far it's so far off the deep end they've effectively polluted the planet to where they're trying to colonize space and i always thought that <laughs> yeah. was going to be one of those things that like i'd be dead by the time that happened like i'm, <laughs> I'm 35 and i figured it would be far enough off that by the time the capitalists had just shit all over everything and said, well, I guess we got to find another planet to make money on, I'd be long dead. But here we fucking are. Yeah. <laughs> oh, man. Uh, so I, uh, we, we, um, you touched on residential schools a bit there. And I, I, I was curious, is that still an ongoing practice or have you completely discontinued that? Because I learned doing the research for American residential schools that we actually still have like 160 of them running. Jesus Christ. Or No, I'm sorry. It's 160 federally funded native education centers. I think 14 of them are off res now. So we still have, I think 9,500 uh, native kids in residential schools here and just announced we were going to do an investigation a few months ago. So we're, as is usually the case, the United States is way the fuck behind on all of this stuff. Yeah. Uh, but did you guys um, discontinue the process? Yeah, our our last one closed in 1996. Holy shit. Yeah, 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 man. 1996, the last one. And uh, there, there's still some kind of day schools where there was like church-led uh, schools that kids would go to after. but. It wasn't the same. It wasn't the same scale of violence, and it wasn't the same scale of uh, community separation. But that was that went on after the 1996 closure. Okay, is this is my ignorance as an American citizen? But is Canada fairly mirror to the U.S. in terms of like native advancements? Is the wrong word, but I guess federal concessions for native for native peoples like we. We had like I think the uh, the in, the Child Indian Welfare Act was like 1976 here, and that closed a lot of our residential schools. Was that about the case over there, or are you like? Um, I'm I'm actually not super knowledgeable about this. My dad okay. told me that the uh, there's tons and tons and tons of natives in the U.S., and I didn't know that. 
I thought there was way less. I thought Canada had a much higher percentage, but I did too, actually. That's news to me. Yeah, because I heard that there was like a million of us here, or over a million now, because we like to get busy. <laughs> but uh, yeah, there's a population. What was it called? A demographic tsunami, where native native families were the fastest growing demographic in Canada, and we reached five point five point two percent of the population here. Uh, and I so didn't. It looks like our native population is two point seven five million. Okay. Which is considerably um, more than I would have thought. Yeah. Honestly. I, I thought it would yeah, I thought it would be about the same thing. The only thing that's really messy with the the classification there is the blood quantum. Right. Um, which is a really, really, really firmly stood against uh way of classifying and understanding indigeneity. because uh, it's like a colonial way of saying, Oh no, you're not native unless you're this percentage. And it's like well, what what the fuck do you mean? I don't control who like. I'm also my curious how that applies to like. I I don't know if I think Canada did this as well, but like in the states, tribes that wouldn't really like play ball with the federal government were just like legislated out of being tribes. Like they were just dissolved as a tribe by the federal government. So there's a lot of native people here who don't technically have a recognized tribe, but are still native. Yeah, I've, I've heard lots of that in the States. We have this funny way of, like, and it's funny because of how like neoliberalism makes everybody rely on law and order, but we have this way of, if we don't like something, we just make it illegal to be that and hope it takes <laughs> care of itself. <laughs> like, oh, this is South Carolina. Well, it's legal for you to be native on this corner. Well, this is where I live. Well, it just so happens that you're not allowed to be that here. So... <laughs> I'll let you figure oh, that out. <laughs> I mean, this is not funny. I don't know what reaction to have besides that to it. But. No, dude. Like, and that's the thing about like so many native things is that it's too painful just to feel the feelings all the time. So we just choose to laugh instead. We'd laugh and joke everywhere. Dude, I opened with a joke at a funeral for my classmate. <laughs> Relatable, unfortunately. And and Relatable. yeah, yeah. <laughs> and the only like, I didn't care how anybody in the room felt except the mom and the grandma of my classmate, and they laughed the hardest. So I was really happy with it. <laughs> I mean, there becomes a point at which reality is so gonzo that you're either going to scream or you're going to make jokes. And yeah, you know, we haven't burned everything down yet, so I guess it's still kind of funny. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, we'll I can't see. remember. I can't remember who the quote was by, but it always stuck with me. And it said that like, I'm either gonna cry or I'm going to laugh. So I'm choosing to laugh, just because of how <laughs> just how gnarly things were. Absolutely. Uh, so you also wanted to touch a bit on imperialism in Canada. Do you want to take the ball and run with that? Um, I I actually. I, I messed up and I just had like, I, I wrote that when I just meant like my, uh, my little bit there. Oh, okay. Okay. But totally. That's totally fine. I, I just, just have two bits on that. Um, Canada, they spent 33 million to help overthrow Venezuela two years ago. Holy shit. They helped lead the fight against uh, Bolivia. And there was another country that they spent a whole bunch of money on recently. Um, but the one, 
the other piece about Canada's imperialism I want to mention is that almost our entire military, almost everything the Canadian military does is just protecting mining corporations in other countries. Really? That is almost everything the Canadian military does. Is that basically why you never hear about the Canadian military? Yep. Okay. They're just freaking henchmen who are standing there to protect nickel, protect freaking gold, silver, tin, all the things. I didn't realize until probably a year or so ago how much Canada is basically just a mining operation masquerading as a country. I did not know that until fairly recently. Because you don't hear a lot about strip mining anymore. You know what I mean? Yeah. Oh, and that's the thing. We don't hear about it because it's all like Latin America and Africa, South America too. It's like we never, ever, ever hear about those struggles. And that that's the thing that I really I really get frustrated with the North American left with is like we spend more time talking about our politicians and like the bourgeois dickheads, right. those paper signing pricks, than we do focusing on the actual struggles of other countries. Like vicious, intense, anti-imperialist struggles are going on, but we're talking about who we're going to vote for or like in Canada, it's such a pain in the ass. You have literally hundreds of thousands of people who think their heart is in the right place, but they're so they're so absorbed and assimilated by the system that they advocate so hard for voting. And they're like, no, man, we have to vote liberals so we can beat the conservatives. <laughs> and then you have so many people like, no, the liberals fucked us over. We got to vote NDP. And the NDP is only like 10% better than the liberals. So what, like, the voting rates are so low in this country. And, like, that's a big... it's like, what, 36%? I can't even remember what percentage it is, but it is not good. And it makes me happy because it lets me know that the people, they understand that all the parties are full of shit. They're neoliberal dogs. Yeah. It's, it's, I always, I always tell people it's that conch shell game. Mm. When you're at the fair... And they spin the little thing, they spin the shells and the little nickel is in the shells or whatever. And you have to guess which which one it is. That is exactly how the election system is. You pick one of those things, they're all operated by the same people. They're all run by corporations. They're all going to pass the same legislation. And we think that we have a choice, but we don't. But because people vote and so like, the turnout is so low because people kind of have that understanding. They know that nothing's really going to change. There's only going to be a couple policy changes depending on who they vote for. Just different levels of tax cuts and overt racism, really. To your point, I think that a lot of the Western left, the the white Western left, uh, the the colo- the colonized mind thing is such an issue because these people grow up at best with white neoliberalism inundating them every day, and then you wake up one day and say, "I'm a leftist," and I read a book, and now I'm a communist, and I get it. But you haven't really done the work to understanding the systems that you benefit from and therefore need to dismantle. Yeah. And I, I also think in terms of voting, like that's that's such an ingrained thing. Like I was thinking about myself as a black person in this country. 
you suggest that you don't want to vote, and the first thing you hear from from community elders is, well, think about how many people died to give you the right to do that. And I mean, sure, but it doesn't work. (laughs) You cannot change a system that is doing exactly what it's meant to from within. Yeah, and I think that that getting people outside of that mechanism of well, no, we just need more progressive candidates for things. No, no, these are career politicians. It doesn't matter what shirt they have on. Yeah, it, it's going to be the same result one way or the other. Yeah, um, and we're so insulated with media, particularly in the U.S., from how those things that are viewed as political abstractions by the people in power affect everyone else that whenever it comes time for things like immigration and all of these countries that have been slowly eroded by these things we haven't been paying attention to show up and want food the reaction is well who the fuck told you you get to live here well <laughs> well you stopped allowing us to have clean water 45 years ago so we 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 showed up uh. yeah <laughs> oh yeah it's like yeah you came fucking destroyed our country exported fascism took all the mines all the resources and then you put all these policies in and then you like brought in chaos and unrest and gave control to a right-wing puppet sellout who then wrecked everything so we literally fled for our lives and now we're the assholes fuck you <laughs> Oh man, like it, it blows it blows my mind so much that people can have just such visceral hatred for refugees and people fleeing like literal violence and like shootings and police and fascists and all kinds of stuff. Well, it's all viewed as an abstraction. You know, in most cases you're seeing these things through the lens of news during dinner time. It's not oh, fuck, there's people outside getting rounded up and put in a truck. It's a blurb in between someone got a cat out of a tree and the new host for Jeopardy. Like it's yeah, it's very geez. I I think I was just saying to someone the other day that outside of all of the other more glaringly obvious things, I think this country and particularly like the ruling class's aversion to Marxism is specific to like critical analysis and critical thinking. Like, yeah. there's a real, real aversion to anyone sitting down and putting five minutes of thought into, so wait, this company says they rely on slave labor for my chocolate, and that's justifiable because we keep buying chocolate. So if I stop buying chocolate, that may cause them to rethink slavery. Fuck it, I want a crunch bar. <laughs> it's, it's a very, I think, I think intentional wrench in the works between self self-actualization and awareness and looking at all of the disparate issues created by the capitalist system that we yeah. are intentionally taught not to notice this shit yeah and that that's like oh man that that ties into some other things like it's so frustrating because like oh man like the average person you could literally talk to like some random liberal who wants to do good or some random like contractor or some random dude making 80 grand a year. And you could talk to him for a solid hour about issues and it wouldn't be enough. Like you'd need like no. three or, like, 
Like you would need like three or four hours to talk to this random ass dude. And that's never the case. You have like like two or three minutes to talk to somebody about something. We're usually. both sitting here having a beer. Convince yeah. me socialism works before I finish this Miller Lite. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, yeah, man, it, it's it's so frustrating. Like I wish Oh man, I don't even know the solution. Well, but some of some of those solutions to a lot of like the problems apparent in capitalism are obvious enough to working class people that I think a lot of it just comes down to propaganda because you can explain without using words like socialism or free healthcare or whatever. So you work a job and wouldn't it be nice if you could go to the doctor without a copay? Yeah, I'd love no copay. Well, as it turns out, if we nationalized that, <laughs> we could just do that. Well, but that's yeah. communism. No, 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 no. Listen, <laughs> listen, listen. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah, man. It's just nuts. The, my one friend mentioned that he wrote this huge, huge thing. And the, the, like the, the end line to it was talking, talking about how the word economics is used as a cudgel to beat working class people mm. over the head and just beat them into submission into like whatever fiscal conservative bullshit or whatever re regressive line used to justify cutting costs to help people. That's all the term economics is used for. It's not used to talk about like trajectories. It's not used to talk about that kind of stuff. It's just used exclusively to cut costs, cut public costs. People never bring it up when it comes to war. People never bring it up when it comes to neoliberal austerity. People never bring it up when it comes to any of that stuff. I think but last year during quarantine, we were spending something like a trillion dollars a week bailing out corporations. <laughs> yeah, right fuck. after we had just been saying like we don't have money for stimulus checks like there was a situation here where like you guys were getting checks every month or canada canada was getting checks to its citizens every month i understand yeah. it didn't really work out great in application but a lot of americans were like so why are we getting one check when we could be getting a check every month well we couldn't afford that burden didn't you just give microsoft two trillion dollars well, yeah. yeah, but like we need them. <laughs> yeah, bro. We need to make those rich guys richer. Otherwise, things are just going to fall apart. Oh, no, no, no. But you're essential. You're essential. But like we really need Bill Gates. <laughs> He's essential, essential. Yeah. Yeah, man. It's a pain in the ass. Um, I wrote a little bit about that a while ago, talking about uh, so called economics and like. You always hear about it from males and almost always white males. Like and a specifically, lot of stuff. <laughs> yeah, specifically, they have these very strange concerns. But yeah, but specifically, <laughs> very specifically, the people who contribute in quotes, the people who contribute the most to the economy are rich people, men. And white folks. Yep. And this isn't because they do the most or they work the hardest. It's because they benefit the most from the exploitation of others. You're not going to hear like marginalized people like, oh, fuck the economy. They have real fucking concerns. They have material needs that are not being met every single day. They can't be like bludgeoned into giving a damn about idealistic concepts of things no exactly 
I, and I think that speaks to we were talking a bit about like white leftists and and liberalism for for a little bit earlier. That I think for a lot of white people, leftist ideology is entirely theoretical. Yeah, it's it's not a real life. Food shortage is a problem. Systemic eradication is a problem. We need to address this before we're all dead. It's wouldn't it be nice if we stopped killing the brown people? <laughs> yeah. Let's have an academic discussion about how we might do that based on several books that I've read. Okay, well, six black kids got shot this week, so what do we want to do about that? Well, as it turns out, Heigl had a very interesting... I don't give a fuck what you read. What do we do about kids dying? I, I yeah. think that there's something lost in how, uh, number one, leftism is, is almost purely academic in, in white Western culture, and how the inverse of that is how heavily anti-intellectualism is championed by Western yeah. people because of how easy it is to control dumb people, to be perfectly frank. Yeah. Well, and like, even, even be like, ah, oh, yeah, that, that's, that's such a long, long discussion there about that subject. Right. But uh, <laughs> and like, I think, I think we can summarize that entire thing is just saying that like the, the so-called freedom of speech of corporations is the direct result of that. And it is like 99% of that Yes, because they can punch out or they can churn out literally a hundred million dollars worth of ads and propaganda. And everybody will almost everybody's going to believe what they hear because you hear something hundreds and hundreds of times. And then people that you tr trust and love repeat the same thing a whole bunch of times and then authority figures in your life repeat the same thing. It's kind of impossible not to believe it if you're like young and developing. Even if you're not young and developing, everybody trusts something. You're going to trust it. So it's just, it just, oh man, it's so frustrating seeing that. Another thing that I have on my list here that I really want to get on the show because I, I, I would love to talk about it for a few minutes is your feelings on white liberal veganism. <laughs> Yes, that, that ties into food deserts, that ties into my critiques of anarchism, that ties into a handful of things. Um, so, uh, white liberal veganism, yes. So, like, these folks, they're not connected to other people. They make the same mistake as a lot of, like, academic white leftists. They're not in the same circles as a lot of marginalized people. They're really, really insulated with people who are like-minded. And a lot of them are judgmental pricks. They're like, I don't want to like rag on them too hard because most white vegans I know are actually awesome. And it's actually a very small percentage who I meet who are fucking terrible. Uh, but they're, the mistake they make is that their entire analysis is limited to animal products. By doing that, they directly like overlook white supremacy. They directly overlook like uh, all the different foods and different exploitation going on. They're overlooking the chocolate industry. Um, so $97 billion of chocolate comes out of Africa every year. And Africa gets 1.5 billion. And everyone thinks West most chocolate comes from Belgium. Yep even though it's um, not tropic. 
Yeah, it's like, oh, that's, I didn't know Belgian was so hot and was so conducive <laughs> to growing chocolates. <laughs> Maybe they got a whole bunch of heat lamps and some fucking Belgium some is climate like change. Sixty percent greenhouses, bro. You don't even know. <laughs> it's just, <laughs> just greenhouses and watches. Yeah. Or wait, no, fuck. that's Switzerland, the other white place everyone thinks chocolate comes from. Yeah. Yeah. So like because Belgium and Switzerland have so much finance capital and control so much of the chocolate industry, people fucking think that like chocolate comes from there. It doesn't. Chocolate is extorted from Africa and they take all the money. They overlook that. They overlook uh, orangutan habitats being destroyed. They overlook soy. Um, mm. I can't remember which country. There was two or three countries where soy was really, really, really big and the local people couldn't afford it because of the demand was so fucking high. That wasn't that Brazil, was it, Alex? I think Brazil, China, and one other place. But I can't remember which. It might have been Japan. But, uh, oh, the orangutans or the soy? The soy, the soy. Yeah. Yeah, the soy was in uh, the Amazon rainforest and one more place. Um, shit. Oh, I got mixed up. But uh, yeah, so like soy get, got fucking gentrified where locals can't afford it. The What was the other one? Uh, guacamole. Guacamole became such a hot industry. Mm. Mexican cartels began massacring farmers of guac farms and taking over became just murdering them left and right and taking over and then coercing a whole bunch of the other ones because it became so valuable that it became worth fighting for <laughs> worth murdering for under capitalism. I, I shouldn't say it became worth it. It became financially uh, incentivized, incentivized to do so. Right. But like they overlook that they overlook, uh, there's also like, a huge problem pro, uh, problem with like avocados, and I think almonds was the other one where exportation for those things for vegan alternatives was affecting the bee population. Yeah, like we were over harvesting bees to try to pump up the amount of certain things we were producing. Yeah, um, bees got fucked around, honey got fucked around, agave got fucked around. There were so many different things like each of these keeps getting gentrified because demand goes so high. And then the, like there's so many hidden costs that liberals don't give a flying fuck about because they're only in it to judge people really harshly. They're not in it. Comfortable. Oh, yeah. Uncomfortable, right? It's like, oh, that ties into this other thing that I want to get into later. But basically, like they overlook all these different horrible, horrible problems. And they just tune it out because it doesn't affect them personally, which is why I like Marxism so much. Like veganism and Marxism actually go hand in hand. The goal of veganism is to reduce suffering. And it's like, that's the most base thing I can think of. No, absolutely. But it's just the, and it's like, just, just the way those specific people are going about it the completely wrong way and overlooking so many things. It's just, it's just, it brings a bad name to veganism, which is a damn shame. Veganism in the States is very interesting. Like, I don't think we've ever talked about this on the show, so I'm kind of glad that we're doing it now. That if you go back like through American history, there's a strong tie between like the moralistic Christian right 
and anti-exotic and aphrodisiac diets and the rise in American veganism, specifically as a move to eat non-ethnic, non-seasoned food. Uh, like it was really big with uh, Dr. Kellogg, uh, the guy who made graham crackers was another one. So we have this really weird sect of heavily moralistic Christian right veganism in this country that's always been here. And it, you see it manifest even in like liberal and left vegans in the racist way that they approach non-white cultures and the way that they interact with animal populations oh man that doesn't surprise me at all and it's it's just a thing that you never really see people talk about everyone just sort of assumes that veganism is automatically woke and it's one of those yeah. things where like if you don't eat meat you've already done the work <laughs> but, <laughs> but the reality is there's always work yeah we live in no, a system like... where the work is inevitable yeah, and it's ongoing. There's like endless things. There's endless work. There's endless projects to support. Exactly. There's endless causes to help. It's not just like, oh, guess what? I don't eat animal products. Everybody sucks but me. I guess I'm done. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, well, I guess I, I did everything I could. Like, there's this really big white savior energy that goes hand in hand with quite a few, quite a bit everything? of everything. Uh, but yeah, yeah, everything. But white vegan, white, white liberal veganism specifically. Um, but really what I really want to tie white liberal veganism to is food deserts. Okay. And that ties into something else. Um, so like what a lot of these liberal vegans don't understand is that it's like material. It's expensive as hell and it costs a lot of time to be able to prepare and cook vegan food. And like, a lot I got I get, I've been in so many arguments with this with people just ridiculous amounts and what like it's always it's always 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 a young white person and I'm pretty sure almost none of them have kids so <laughs> so they don't have to think about the cost preventative aspect of only eating at whole foods yeah they don't have to worry about that they don't have to worry about cooking and cleaning and then getting the two jobs and then dropping the kids off. So they're like these people who don't live in a food desert, who have access to everything, who have food shipped to them around the world year round every day. And it's like, dude, most people don't have that access. It's some it's it's just a glaring, glaring, glaring hole. And I think it would be difficult for most Americans to even conceptualize the idea of food scarcity. Yeah, you, know, you talk to white Americans in the state, white white people in the states, and they'll go grocery shopping and say something to the effect of, "They were out of they were out of oranges. I'll go back tomorrow." It was a huge inconvenience. They were out of oranges. There's places in the in the world that never get oranges. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> because they're all here. Yeah. Oh yeah, it's it's just it's crazy. Um, but yeah, like that they, they they don't. Those people don't think about the costs, the time, all those different things, and the access. They don't think in terms of access, which is something that like everybody needs to do in order to really be in the mindset of thinking of getting people services and getting people things that they materially need. They don't, and they're, they're, so they're just coming from the wrong mindset where it's not coming from the mindset of helping people, it's coming on the mindset of shitting on people. 
Well, and if I have it, it must not be a problem. I think that's, <laughs> yeah. that's an observable thing for a lot of white Anglos in particular, I think, is that, well, this can't be an issue. I didn't have that problem. I mean, we can apply that yeah. to things like student debt. We can apply it to bad like working conditions, you know, poor economic status, whatever. Well, I figured that out. Did you, though? Like, I mean, you've been financially insulated from every major crisis for the last 250 years, and this country was essentially jerking off all over itself to give you property. Did you? Yeah. Really? Like, <laughs> <laughs> Oh, man. It's like, dude, just because your great-great-great-grandpa benefited some from, from brutal, brutal, brutal land theft doesn't mean that things are good. You just don't have the fucking understanding of the material consequences of the way things have unfolded for the last 400 goddamn years. It's, it's an oh, entire man. culture without like a form of object permanence. <laughs> you know what I mean? Oh, where did all oh, the natives man. go? Well, <laughs> there were several million people here and now there aren't. What do you think that means? Yeah, dude, like, I, I remember, like, the specific time frame for concept permanence being, like, really young. So I just imagine, like, a whole bunch of, like, bearded hipsters with, like, really long beards with freaking avocado and expensive whatever juice. Just, like, a year old, just, like, walking around. Because, like, <laughs> just, just the way you describe that. Where's the haberdashery? I, you know, I'm yeah. getting real tired of all of these unwhite people asking me for change on my way home from getting my boots shined. <laughs> Fuck. Someone should oh, tell man. them to get jobs. Where do they live? Well, they used to live here, actually. <laughs> but, you know, whatever. Um, so that's that's bleak. Uh, don't mean to bum everybody out. Uh, so if you, you you mentioned food deserts, though. I always think about everything in the context of being an American citizen because I am, and we only think about ourselves. Is that also <laughs> is that also an issue in Canada to the to the extent that it is here? I don't really know much about your food distribution system. It's 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 very different here. Um, I can't remember what the numbers are. I think it's like ninety percent of the Canadian population lives within fifty miles of the border. Wow. Yeah, it's huge. It's like unbelievably huge. So what you have is a whole bunch of like rural populations and then all the native reservations are like way the fuck out. Um, I just got back from my village like three days ago and it was a two hour ferry, uh, 400 kilometer drive, which is about 250 miles and then a six hour ferry. And to, that ferry was actually booked going up. So we had a 12-hour drive <laughs> followed by a uh, six-hour ferry. Holy shit. Now, how much yeah, of that dude. Canadian land is, like, undeveloped? Like, a lot. It, it's, it's just a, a lot of undeveloped land. Yeah, lots of forest, which, which I'm very grateful for. Very, very grateful for. In a way, you're doing that better than we are. I mean, we have Wyoming, but... <laughs> <laughs> Which I'm pretty sure is just a gigantic federally owned open air park. But other than that, oh, nice. you know, we've turned a lot of our greenlands into suburbs and moved the worst people in the world into them. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Um, 
there's there's another thing related to food deserts that I wanted to get into. Oh yeah, okay. So before I jump ahead, I I want to mention that like uh, food costs are ridiculously high for things in most native reservations and most rural places around here. And uh, I, I think it was the Inuit people. It was like $120 for a case of water. Holy shit. It was like 15 bucks for a can of soup. It was just wild. Are those um, import tax costs or how the fuck does that happen? I have no idea, man. But it's just like, it's, it's got to be a bunch of stuff like that. And then the costs of getting it there because it's really, really wild getting there. Now, okay, so this is a thing that not being Native or Canadian, I don't know anything about, and maybe you could help me understand this. So if you live on a res, is is all of the food there provided by the government, or do you have, like, a grocery that's provided by, like, food distributors? Like, how does that work? Um, so related to this, it's uh, really important to mention that the, the funding comes from a trust, it comes from the interest of the trust of that was like basically is a uh, like a land trust between the tribe and the government kind of a thing. Yeah, yeah. So like this okay. giant land, land trust, I think it was a trillion dollars or something like that. And they obviously weren't able just to like say, okay, yeah, we colonized you. Here is like fair compensation. Here's a trillion dollars. They definitely weren't going to do that. And I don't think they had the money to either. So all of our funding comes from the interest from that. Okay. Um, but, oh, man, there's so many things I could talk about. Holy fuck. Uh, but, oh, man, holy. But, yeah, so then there's, like, just big-ass shipping costs of getting stuff everywhere. Like, we have to ship stuff from, like, 600 kilometers away to get anything to my hometown wow yeah and tugboats aren't cheap the diesel's a fuck around right traffic's the fuck around there's and there's lots of hidden stuff that and th the one crappy thing is that like because it's the band like it's the native indigenous band uh the tribe people charge the fuck out of them for every little thing it's like the same thing as like government contracts you just charge as much as you possibly can to them that's the strange thing about trying to destroy a culture is all of the little ways that you work into the system to do that that aren't just showing up and burning down houses it's all of yeah. the quiet part loud shit that most white people don't even know that the countries they live in are doing in some cases um, and to that end, and I think uh, sovereignty and solidarity, uh, do you want to get into land back a bit? Um, yeah, I can mention it really briefly. Uh, this is like, oh man, it was so funny. I mostly saw anarchists losing their shit about it, but I even saw a couple, I think I saw two Marxist-Leninists losing their shit too. Because in my experience, Marxist-Leninists are generally, they have their shit together the most. They've read the most. Uh, usually they're pretty principled and they do really well. But I was so... It, I, I, sh I, I have know. a thing I, about I, white authoritarianism that makes me want to load rifles. Yeah. That's, that's the only hey, thing I'm going to say about that. <laughs> um, 
if you want to load rifles, they're a good group to be around. That's also true. They're usually the <laughs> ones with guns. So I, 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 I give you that for sure. Uh, and, and they have the philosophy to back it up and to be principled about it. They uh, are usually Th Thomas, better read than anarchists. I'll definitely say that. Yeah. Uh, Thomas Sankara has a really, has a bunch of uh, quotes and stuff related to this, just saying that like, yeah, man, you know, the theory is so important. Anybody can wield a gun, but anybody with a gun is a potential criminal, a potential murderer, a potential person being manipulated. So that's, that's why quote. it's really, oh, I, I, it's, it's like, I'm, I'm completely paraphrasing it. I'm probably butchering. I know the it. quote you're referencing. I, I always think about it in terms of the way Americans sort of conceptualize being gun owners with having freedom. <laughs> you know, and I say oh, this man. as a gun owner. There's a very strong culture of my gun ownership is my freedom, is my American right in this country. And it's such a weird fallacy that, like, you had to go and sign up for a registry to get a thing, but you're free because you have it. Yeah. <laughs> but it's cool. The people who let you have it know where you live and where you are all the time. So <laughs> and enjoy that freedom. They also reserve the right to show up and take it anytime they fucking want to. And they have drones, yeah. but whatever. Yeah. yeah. Um, so yeah, I just, I really like that Sankara quote about it. Just saying like, yeah, you know, it's like, it's really important to have the theoretical understanding to, to have the education to not be like basically a mercenary and to be somebody who's actually really working hard to fight for other people and not just to be like, ha I got a gun. I'm free, but I'm totally, totally butchering that. And, uh, but yeah, I think you're just... speaking to the, to the, the, the intention of the quote though, which is, yeah, you know, being unprincipled with a gun is just that. Yeah. And that yeah, there's really more like to that. revolution than just arming the people. If the people don't know why they're arming themselves, then you're just giving a lot of people rifles and that doesn't historically end well. Oh yeah, historically that's a disaster, and that, that's why I like the Marxist concept of revolution so much. Like the the usual, like the Hollywood understanding of revolution that we're like battered with our whole lives. White man blows like, shit up to save the world. It's like, oh yeah, we get together, we get the guns, and then we overthrow them, and then it's over. And then I get the like, girl in the credits roll. Yeah, then the credits roll, and then I walk out of the theater feeling really happy. But it's like, no, actually, historically, capitalists seize that time very, very, very well. They have the money. They have fascists around them. They have jackboots. They have mercenaries. And nature abhors a vacuum. Yeah, nature, nature just hates a vacuum. And capitalists love a vacuum. Douchebags and bastards thrive, thrive when there's a power vacuum. And they do that very well. They fund Nazis and fascists and they do all this stuff. And then liberals are just kind of like standing around with their heads up their asses like, oh, this isn't so good. What do we do? The I would like to form a committee to think about starting about wondering about maybe doing something about this. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Let's begin step one of the Red Tape Citizens Committee. Like, no, you needed to take steps 10 years ago and you didn't. We're way too late on this. Yeah. So, yeah, it's just, oh, man. But, uh, but yeah, like, Nazis, 
capitalist, they thrive when that stuff happens. And like, that's, that's what a lot of, uh, a lot of folks get called uh, utopians when they, when they come at it from that angle, because they don't know the history of that, where those bastards, they do really, really well. And the antagonisms that exist now, they thrive and they get intense. They get massively intensified. And it's only through a party, through a whole bunch of people working together for the benefit of humanity to fight against that. That's what works against that. Not dicking around with the committee, not wondering what to do, not not saying, oh, maybe we just got to vote blue for harm reduction. It's like, no, dude, (laughs) that's not going to save us. Uh, We're about three centuries too late for harm reduction in most cases. (laughs) I think you've you've missed the boat on mitigating a lot of that at this point. Yeah. Oh, yeah, man. This, this this feels a lot like whatever I looked up the Indian Act at the beginning and realized, like, oh, this is a lot to fucking cover in a very short period of time. <laughs> There's so it's, I mean, that's the thing about systems, though, is that it's not just the one thing. It's literal pieces of everything kind of coming together to create a mosaic of dog shit that yeah. drowns everybody. Oh, yeah. It's, it's like, it's like the way I see it, it's like, trying to explore the bottom of the ocean there's just too many things to do it would take forever tons of discussion we don't have the budget or the time for that they just don't have a budget what the fuck are you talking about i don't have a budget (laughs) (laughs) yeah this isn't the part where you tell me you were hoping i was going to pay you for this is it (laughs) (laughs) hey that ice cream sandwich better come in the mail or i'm asking for my money back I can send you an ice cream sandwich. I can't promise that it won't be melted, but I will send yeah. you an ice cream sandwich. Yeah. No, that's okay. <laughs> I actually do that with chocolate bars. I throw it in the freezer, and then it, it comes out great. It's just really deformed. I mean, they, they end up looking the same after you chew them. It's probably fine. <laughs> It'll look the same in the toilet. Don't worry. <laughs> now, you said, but, uh, you, you said you had a joke about anarchists, and I actually am looking forward to hearing this. Yeah. Uh, but uh, I, I, I skipped over the Marxist concept of revolution that I just oh. really want to touch on quickly. Oh, go ahead. Um, so like Marx's concept of revolution is understanding that there's all these antagonisms that exist. If we had a revolution tomorrow, or if we overthrew the government, if we overthrew the corporations, if we overthrew the, uh, the bourgeois control of the state, and replaced it with the workers' state immediately, all those antagonisms would, was, would still exist. Like sexism, patriarchy, homophobia, Absolutely. ableism, transphobia, racism, anti-Semitism, xenophobia, etc. All these things, they still exist in the minds of the people. And it's going to take generations of legislation and direct programs to eliminate all these things it's gonna take a long fucking time it's we can't just like roll up with guns overthrow them and then everything's like amazing that's like the first step to getting there right i do find a lot of people expressing like exhaustion that we haven't figured all of it out already like particularly after last year there were a lot of people who were very new to leftist ideology and politics who thought like 
having a picnic for a weekend meant we were going to solve police brutality. (laughs) And no, like it's, it's been a thing for as long as they've been here. It takes more than just, you know, a fucking sign and a really catchy slogan to end a systemic problem. (laughs) Yeah. And and that's what I like about Marxist Leninists too, is that through rigorous theory and understanding, they've come to understand all the same things that we as colonized people have understood, expressed, and experienced for decades. They know that um, just all, yeah, they, they know that police are fucking trash. They know that capitalism is garbage. They know that all the different antagonisms are there and they're fucking us around and that the material way things are and the way they've set up has caused us endless, endless, endless amounts of grief. Um, But that joke that I have is there are two types of people, people who use the words dialectical materialism, international working class solidarity, and people who use the word tanky. Oof. <laughs> Big oof. But also, yes. <laughs> like also also yes. <laughs> yeah. And and like as an indigenous person, I get so frustrated with it. And I was like, I ragged on them so hard for months. And I try not to anymore for something that I'll get into in a minute. But like the most of the Black Panthers were Marxist Leninist. True. Most of the Af- most of the African revolutions were Marxist Leninist. Cuba was Marxist Leninist. Vietnam was Marxist Leninist. All the biggest projects were mostly people of color and Marxist Leninist. And then we have like all these like self-interested white leftists who were mostly in into leftism for their own self-interested shit who were just advocating for voting in Bernie like three months ago. And most of them still are true. They're like, Oh oh, yeah, man, we got to do this. We got to vote. It's like, dude, (laughs) this is understand that that doesn't work. It's just football. Like you're, it's just football. It's just football for people who read. Yeah. (laughs) It's like politics is just professional sports for book readers. That's all. Yeah. It's like, dude, this, this is like, it's not a partisan thing. It's not cheering on your team. This is the real struggle that people have fought and died for. That's the and thing. That we, and that we too should fight and die for it because the people are worth fighting for across the world. It's not just something like, oh yeah, you know, I guess I'll vote Bernie. Oh yeah, you know, I guess I'll like donate 20 bucks to the Democrats. It's like, no, donate your 20 bucks. And then donate more to every freaking movement that you can that is led by marginalized people, that is directly radical, that is hard, hard, hard against patriarchy, colonization, uh, imperialism, and capitalism. I agree. I think that... um... The, the As I mentioned before, the big roadblock to a lot of that is the theoretical way that a lot of white people, particularly in the West, approach uh, the idea of revolution. It's not something that is, I think, that that comes from the not unpacking the white privilege, how you benefited from white supremacy, things like that, where you view this as an exercise 
It's it's uh, we're having a debate on a thing I read. It's not. <laughs> it doesn't directly like. I, we can have a principled academic conversation about police brutality. At the end of the day, only one of the two of us has to worry about getting shot when I'm talking to yeah. a white person. So any yeah. conversation you have is purely academic and not applicable. You yeah. can think about what it might be like to fear for your life, but you don't actually do it. Yeah. Uh, and my my major aversion to white leftists of any stripe is how many of them think that by simply being leftists, they've unpacked all of that already. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's the like the no. act of being an anarchist or being a communist means I've worked through it and achieved class consciousness. No, it doesn't. You're a Democrat in a Nushanka. That's not the same thing yeah. as having actually worked through any of this shit. Yeah, it's like... <laughs> The, the label that you slap on yourself, it gives me a good indicator based on how many other people I met who use that same label, but it doesn't like, it doesn't instantly just tell people that you did all the things and that you learned all the things. It takes a serious, and like, that's the other thing I like about like the different particular labels is there's very, very, very distinct patterns. Very distinct patterns. I think that's true. Some are definitely indicators. Yeah, but you uh, can infer I'm a lot gonna... about a person who likes Trotsky. I'll give you that. Uh... <laughs> yeah, you, you can. Yeah, I hear you. Um, what's it called? Oh fuck! I, I had something I was gonna say there. I can't remember. That happens um, to me all the fucking time. We actually have like a word for it when it happens. Um, it's mostly because I'm high while I'm doing this. Usually. <laughs> yeah. Like, because I, I get performance anxiety on mic, so I have to smoke, like, five grams of weed before I record the show, <laughs> but that also means that, like, I forget what I'm reading in the middle of reading it sometimes. Yeah, so there's, I'll be in the middle of making a point, and then just wait, what the fuck was I talking about? Hey, I need you to fill time. I forget what I was doing. Oh, and, man. You know, it's, professionalism is important to me, is what I'm saying. Nice. <laughs> um... Uh, I, I'd like to jump into the uh, chief and council bit here. I have. Okay, please. So the Indian Act in 1867 or 1871, can't remember which one, uh, they put in this legislation that says you need to have this particular system of governance. It doesn't matter what system of governance that you had, it needs to be this exact Canadian model. And that exact Canadian model is the exact model that Canada uses, which it has a body, it has a little Senate, it has a council, and then it has one head. And this is very, very deliberate, and it makes corruption a, a feature, not a bug. It guarantees corruption. A lot of the different Indigenous nations, they had models very similar to, uh, I should, I, I don't know, I I don't want to say that. It had models where it had full transparency and they discussed everything. And then at the end of it, they had one speaker who then would deliver the conclusion of that big discussion. And then that would be the consensus. So they directly undermine that and they directly crush that system. And each different um, tribe had their own systems of governance or whatever. But this took a blank slate to all of those 
and said, you need to conform to this or you're going to jail. Or you need to conform to this or these horrible things are going to happen to you. So everybody hates chief and council. And rightfully so, but they're not hating why. They're just hating the result of it. And it's, it's, it's painful to hear because it's everywhere you go, every different native, you can make a chief and council joke. And they'll be like, yeah, they'll laugh their asses off. Or they'll just empathize with it and be like, yeah, you know, it sucks. They get paid 100 grand a year. They sell us out. Bad shit happens. And then terrible legislation goes through. But it's done specifically because, like, one governing head and one body that helps the head govern, they're immensely bribable. You can bribe 10 people, but you can't bribe 2,000. It's the same way for the country. You can bribe 150 people, but you can't bribe 35 million. <laughs> right. I was right. That definitely would have been a lot for me to try to learn and understand out of a Wikipedia article. So yeah. does that really, does that trace back to the same sort of trying to legislate away indigenous culture shit that like the residential schools do? Is it sort of like rooted in the same sort of a thing? Um, oh yeah, it's, it's definitely rooted in like that deliberate, uh, deliberate focus of disrupting indigenous communities and directly like destroying ways of life that we had previously had that worked really, really, really well because we had a really, really long time to work it out. Right. Um, As it turns my, out, my nation totally actually found out for everybody so else. Five years here. ago, an article came out. <laughs> well, we, we had our share of problems. We actually had, I don't want to say a ton of problems, but we had, we definitely had our share of problems. But uh, about five years ago, it came out like, yeah, some new archaeological, new archaeological evidence came out showing that the health nation has been here, in fact, 12,000 years. And we're all like, holy fuck, yeah, maybe even longer. And then like two years later, same thing happened again. More archaeological evidence came out and said that we'd been here for 13,000 years. Holy shit. And now, like two years ago, came out that we've been here for... 14,000 years. Wow. And I don't I don't know where it's going to end or how long we've been here, but quite a bit longer than Canada and this fucking <laughs> I mean, definitely definitely longer than the uh, what was that? The establishment of Canada was what? The 1600s, 1700s? The 1867. 1867. Yeah. Wow, so they didn't establish Canada till we had like already gotten rid of slavery? I didn't realize that. Yeah, Canada's actually like not very old and it's basically just like Britain's like forgotten child or like rebellious child mm. that kind of got adopted by the United States. Sorry about that. <laughs> yeah. Oh man. That that oh, that's something that I like really like to mention quickly. The Canadians are fucking dickheads most of them are liberal dickheads with no solutions who think they're progressive because they have health care that they never fought for that they never advocated for and they haven't advocated for dick since the 
the one big problem that is in Canada is that like we see all the American media. So we pretty much just think very, very, very probably 80% overlap similar to Americans. I'm sorry again. (laughs) (laughs) No worries, man. No worries. You're you're directly taking action action against that by helping viewers know and helping them attack Canadians very, very principled and saying, you aren't any better than us. You just have healthcare instead of guns. That's um that's an inter aren't you guys about to have like an emergency election too? Like, yeah, they sort do. of on the way to having a conservative government, more than likely. Yeah, man, it's not going to be nice. Um, I've been telling a... white people in this country who say they want to move there for the past five years that it's just going to be Michigan in the next decade. It's, <laughs> <Yeah>. it's really... <laughs> yeah, it, it's not progressive here. It's neoliberal. It's uh, Most of the racism is just directed at like immigrants and native folks. And it's just less overt, and it's less, uh, it's a bit more subtle. Well, and I have but... to assume living next to the loudest country on the planet affords you the ability to, if you're quiet enough, you never really have to work on anything because everybody is paying attention to the dumpster fire that you're right next to. Yeah, dude. And it's like, that is the lowest bar in hell no, to measure right. yourself yeah. with. Better, <laughs> better like... than the U.S. doesn't mean anything. <laughs> yeah. Dude, it, it's, it's literally like, it's almost an insult to yourself to use the United States as a measuring stick for how progressive you are. Like, that's the bar you want to use? Are you shitting me? We are better than the people who are absolutely the worst at this in the history of everything. Well done. Yeah, it's like... Well done. <laughs> they wrote it's the like, book on how like everyone handles implementing white supremacy to continue capitalism in a patriarchal system. Literally everyone studied it. Congrats. Yeah. <laughs> oh, Hitler admired this country. Yeah. Um I'd like like to bust out one of my jokes here. And it says, if the stigma, burden, and responsibility of abortion fell on the shoulders of men instead of women, things would look very, very different here. All of a sudden, abortions would be more convenient, more affordable, and more accessible than it would be for a drunk guy getting fast food while equipped with a handgun, cash, credit, coupons. And I fucked the order up with that, but my bad. <laughs> that That's sharp. <laughs> That's how I'd like to try, right? But I don't have the best delivery. Oh, I mean, delivery just comes with time, man. I mean, I just found a way to mention that I'm high often enough that when I stutter, no one thinks anything of it. It just becomes <laughs> yeah. a, a fun aspect of my character and not <laughs> nice. like me having a problem with speaking correctly. <laughs> oh, man, I got into a great conversation. I like to talk about this with as many people as I can that like English is a bastard Frankenstein language and I have active disrespect for it and I actively go out of my way not to speak correctly because like first of all it's convenient but secondly because like upholding English and all its rules and all its bullshit it's rooted in classism and racism I mean that's that's real as fuck (laughs) you know yeah and it's like the people who are going to be like 
hit the hardest by that is like African-Americans who are getting dicked around by like white teachers and just people who are fucking assholes about that kind of stuff. Like, I know there's tons and tons of other problems and other, uh, other history there, but it's like, I hate that so much when people are grammar Nazis and people are really uptight about language. It's like, dude, English doesn't deserve to be defended. <laughs> to your point, that's, that's a part of why I speak the way I do was growing up, having it hammered into my head that I needed to not sound dumb when I talk by using AAVE usually was what people were referencing with that. So yeah. now I have this heavily structured way of speaking that is very much a uh, response to being concerned white people will think I sound stupid when I talk. Yeah. Uh, like it's, it's nice to speak to not white people and be able to loosen that up because it feels like I can't relax whenever I'm speaking to a room full of white people because I might say ain't and all of a sudden, even though I'm smarter than everyone else in the room, my credibility is gone because I'm a black dude who used slang. Yeah. <laughs> Fuck, that sucks, man. I hate that so much. Well, and it's so like, much dude. of it is just culture. You know, yeah. the, the Cab Calloway wrote an entire dictionary on like the way black people were speaking at that period in time called the Hep Dictionary. Nice. Fuck, that's I, I love that so much. And like that's a, that's another thing that I like harp on quite a bit is that um like North Americans are mostly monolingual jackasses. And their entire, like, existence and way of thinking and understanding is rooted in English, which is also rooted in, like, a lot of Christian. But, yeah, appropriation rooted in, like, Christian themes, rooted in, like, capitalist ideas. It's not rooted in, like, things that are really big in other languages. And every different language has so many different words and so many different concepts and philosophies. And all of those are erased by not being able to understand those languages. And instead, we're left with fucking English, which is a colonial bastard language, and it doesn't deserve our respect. So fuck anybody who has ever made you feel that way. Fuck anybody who has ever undermined you or been a fucking prick about that. Today, while I was, or I guess yesterday it would have been while I was doing research for the uh, the episode of the show, I learned that the Lakota word for white man is the same as land taker, and <laughs> through that, uh, shout out to Wolf, a uh, friend and fan of the pod, let me know that it's actually more like a fat taker, like fat of the land sort of a thing, like the taker of oh resources. Yeah. And I, I was just smacked in the face with how every language other than English has an ability to convey emotion in a way English never does. That, you know, whether um, we're talking about, you know, Lakota or Hebrew or whatever the language might be, how do I say I'm experiencing severe ennui to which means that I probably won't leave the bedroom today? Oh, we have a word for that. <laughs> yeah. Oh, man. Yeah, it's a pain in the ass. Like, German gets so much credit for having all these different words for concepts. But it's like, dude, every different language has words for different concepts. Stop but being German... so impressed by schadenfreude, for fuck's sake. Yeah, it's like, fuck, man. German gets way too much credit for language. And a lot of stuff, really. 
Like, yeah. Uh, the Germans get credit for a late, the, the idea of like the Germans invented efficiency. That's dope. If you looked at Asian history at all, I, <laughs> like, I don't. <laughs> and the answer is yeah. if you're from a Western country, you haven't. So I get it. Yeah. But... And, and that, that's another funny thing is that like so many of these big things that European countries have gotten credit for have all been stolen from Asia mostly. Yes. I can't remember. I think it was uh, the Greeks 2,500 years ago. They sent people out all across the world to go, quote, learn all these <laughs> concepts and then come back. I know what learn then, really means. <laughs> and then they got the credit for it. So they basically sent motherfuckers out to copyright all these amazing ideas 2,500 years ago. And now we have Interscope Records. It's just one big through line from stealing agriculture to Eminem. <laughs> yeah. Oh, man. Well, fuck, Alex. It's been wonderful having you on. Um, I really appreciate you taking the time to address all of these things and reading that, that speech that you gave. I still have goosebumps from that. Um, is there anything in particular like uh, that you want to plug before we play out here? Um, yeah, I have uh, maybe f three or four podcasts I'd like to plug and one last joke. Right on. So I'll start with a joke and say that never ask a woman her weight, a trans person their dead name, a settler colonist what they think of indigenous rights, a liberal about police abolition, a Cuban in Miami about how they feel about politics, <laughs> or an Argentinian why their grandpa speaks German. Oof. <laughs> if you could put one of those on one of those stupid, like, trucker t-shirts with the Grim Reaper on it, I would absolutely buy one. <laughs> oh, my God. I would love that. <laughs> and I would like to plug the Seriously Wrong podcast. I would like to plug the Red Nation podcast. I would like to plug Nick Estes. I'd like to plug um, Glenn Coltard. Oh, there's just too many people to plug, man. Holy cow. Uh, uh, I think I'd like to end with um, one of my favorite quotes ever. And I won't say who it's by, but I'll just, it's just one of my favorite quotes. Okay. And it's, it says, it is difficult for me to imagine what personal liberty is enjoyed by an unemployed person or an unemployed hungry person. True freedom can only be where there is no exploitation and oppression of one person by another, where there is not unemployment and where a person is not living in fear of losing his job, his home, and his bread. Only in such a society, personal and any other freedom can exist for real and not on paper. Wow. Powerful fucking words, man. Thank you. Oh man, I, I've oh fuck, sorry. <laughs> I want I want to end with one more joke. Oh no, please joke. I'm sorry, man. No, don't, you have no reason to apologize. This is <laughs> the least amount of work I've ever had to do on one of these episodes. I'm not complaining at all. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Okay. That, hey, that you can do that. Like the next time you're like hungover or something, and you have to do an episode, but you don't want to like put a bunch of time into it hit me up and just be like, yo, I need you to take like 
a whole bunch of material into this because I am hung the fuck over. <laughs> It'd be like a teacher. Just I got way too drunk over the weekend. Monday we're watching va- National Lampoon's Vacation. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, yeah. So this one, this this will be my last one. If you want to dress up as a native this Halloween, you have to give up your clean water for a month. You have to get maced by a cop. And then you have to get shit kicked by a res girl. Fucking A. <laughs> That's amazing. Thank you very much for being here, Alex. I really appreciate it. All right, my man. I had a fucking great time being on here. Uh, hit me up anytime. I had a blast. Excellent. Love you, buddy. All right, man. Love you, too. Ladies and gentlemen, that was Alex Reed. Uh, dropping all kinds of science and knowledge on us. I I just want to thank him again for coming on. And uh, this being the season finale of the Monday episodes, I just want to thank all of you for tuning in and learning along with me. I really appreciate all of the support and positive feedback. This has been a really difficult season with a lot of really heavy topics. So I uh, sympathize with people who've reached out and said that this has been impactful for them. Uh, I just want to let you know that I love you all, and uh, we'll be back soon. So this is Moxie O'Brien of the Four Cornered Room. Thank you, and good night. Mm-hmm.